That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Hey, this is Debbie Gibson, and I can't wait for you to hear my incredible conversation with Ken Levine on Hollywood and Levine. That's right, Debbie Gibson, right here on Hollywood and Levine. Hi, I am Ken Levine, your podcast host, and Debbie Gibson was a huge pop star back in the late 80s. She burst upon the scene in 1987. Out of the Blue was her first album. She's also the youngest female artist to write, produce, and perform a Billboard Hot 100 number one single, which was Foolish Beat. 1989, she was named the Songwriter of the Year. She toured. She had multiple huge hits. She's also starred on Broadway, and she continues to tour and to record, and boy, it's nice to have her. She is really a fun guest, and I didn't bring this up, but uh, this is probably the pinnacle of her career. She was on a float last November in the Macy's Day Parade. Anyway, this is the first of a two-parter, and we will get into her songwriting process. Also, kind of how she broke in. Really a lot of things. Debbie Gibson. Hollywood and the Vine. So you gravitated towards music at a very early age. How young were you when you first discovered music? So I was like four when my older sisters started taking piano lessons. My parents got a piano in the house. Even before that, though, I don't know like how I knew music, except for the fact that, you know, my parents played a lot of records around the house and radio was a part of our lives. And the Casey Kasem Top 40 Countdown was a part of our lives. And I wanted a guitar when I was two. And I don't remember this at all, but my parents said, well, you're obviously too small for a guitar. So they got me a ukulele. And I have these, I have this picture blown up in my, in my studio. It's also on my Instagram with my ukulele and a hat that looks kind of like the hat I'm wearing today, like a straw hat. So I've always been a hat and music girl. But when I discovered the piano, I discovered that I could play by ear. I mean, I didn't really know what that meant, but my parents were like, I don't think every four-year-old does this. So I remember distinctly, though, being in love with the song, Billy, don't be a hero. And I would run down to my sister's room where the stereo was. I'd listen to it, and I'd run back to the piano, and I'd plunk out the left hand and the right hand. I would do mm, pa, mm, pa, and the bass and the melody. 
And then I would listen to my sisters practice piano and play their classical pieces by ear. And my mother was like, my mo- both of my parents, but my mom in particular was like, you should get this kid lessons, even though it seems a little young. And so I spent a little over a year pretending I was reading music, but really I was remembering my sister's pieces by ear. And then the teacher said, okay, now we have to, um, you know, start, start over and learn how to read the music. Um, so yeah, I was just in love with music and it was like my first language. I mean, really, I think of it like it's its own language and it's still the language I think in more than anything. And you're a writer, so I'm sure you can relate that it's like your mind just works on that kind of uh, in that plane, you know? And right. I, I like I jokingly say, but it's true when I write songs, it's because I'm singing my thoughts. So if, I, if something, if I'm feeling something, it usually, it's not just an inner monologue in my head, it kind of drops in in song form. Doesn't mean all those songs are good or marketable, <laughs> but it literally like, like life's in ongoing music. There's like a soundtrack in my head that I, I, I always say like, I don't even claim, I mean, I write my songs, clearly it's not like someone else is writing them, but they really just drop in. And then I kind of sort through the ideas and write them down, but I'm not like strategic about writing. It's just very innate. I remember one time I asked you about writing songs and you said that you like to write songs on airplanes. And so I said to you, so does that mean, because, you know, I don't know how to write, write songs. I said, so you have like headphones and a little keyboard. And you said, no, you just jot it down. Yeah. And, and then I said to you, okay, so when you get home, I said, and you sit down at the piano and you play what you wrote. I said, how similar is it to what you had in your head? It's the the same. Yeah. Yeah. And it just like stunned me. It's crazy. So, you know, as we get older and as, you know, there's all this crazy like illness in the world, not to get morbid, but like I often think I have, you know, I have like hundreds of notebooks in my garage with all these songs. And it's like, it would be like somebody finding hieroglyphics on a cave wall. I think, oh my God, if somebody found these, I don't know if they'd be able to interpret them because I'm not writing on, I can write on manuscript paper, like, you know, actual notes and timings and rests and things, but that takes forever. Instead, I write the words and I write E, F, G, whatever the notes are above them. And I have timing and I have a little like symbol for an eighth note or a 16th note. And I write the chords and it's my own version of writing a score that, oh, that only I really understand. And I must have been Asian in another life or Jewish <laughs> because I tend to, because in Hebrew, do you write from right to left? Does it mm-hmm. do books go right? Mm-hmm. So I'll write on the page to the right and then I'll go <laughs> to the left. It's like, I don't know. I've been writing like this since I am like six years old. It's, well, it it's an automatic writing thing. It's bizarre. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Remember a story once that Burt Bacharach told that when he was writing in the early 60s in the Brill Building era, he was writing yep. with Hal David. So yep. he's he's like walking to work and he comes up with this idea for a song and he had no paper and he had a pen and there was like a, a fence, a wooden fence. And he just wrote it 
on the fence. Wow. And then he got to the Brill Building and he said to Hal Davis, he says, give me some paper. I got to go back and, and write this. Wild. Yeah. That's never happened to me. I can't, and now I can't stop thinking of what do you get when you fall in love? Um, <laughs> but yeah, I, I love Burt Backrack, but um, that's an amazing story. Wow. That's yeah. Amazing. Do you write the lyrics first or the music or they just come together? How they does that work? They usually come together or or a concept comes to mind or one sentence like again, I think if everyone taps it tapped into their inner monologue, they'd see how many like little nuggets come to them in a course of a day that could be a song. And it's just that when you're a songwriter and you think like that, you're you tune in, oh my god, so everything's an idea for a song. And um, like yesterday, I said to my manager on on the phone, I said I was talking about someone. I said, "Oh yeah, he's all kinds of kinds of crazy." Wait, what did I say? Oh, he's all kinds of shades of crazy or something. And she's like, "Song lyric," like you just start thinking that way. But um, but then usually immediately a melody or a tone for it, like a chord or something that sets a tone, kind of comes with it, like whooshing in immediately. It's rare that I sit down. And like write a poem and then set it to music uh-huh. or vice versa. Now, if you see on my Instagram and my social media, like I, I do often write like classical pieces without lyrics that I might be able to fit lyrics in, but maybe not. But I find it's the most cohesive when they come in together. Uh-huh. Again, okay, it's I'm like saying you your thoughts here. and kind of trusting it, you know, like I remember the day I came home from school and wrote Lost in Your Eyes. And I sat at the piano and it was as if I was playing a song that was already written. I mean, it's like, it's like I'm in it and I'm observing it at the same time. And it's absolutely fascinating. And I'm so grateful for that gift in this lifetime. Like I go, what did I do to deserve that? If I had to pick any gift, I'd pick that. I'd pick that above singing or, or anything. It's just, it's very magical because I'm like a witness to it. And I sat at the piano and I went, clink, clink, clink. And I just started singing. And it was like as quick as my writing hand could, you know, because there were no voice recorders back then. And I wasn't like really recording things on cassettes or anything. I would write everything out. So as quickly as I could write it down, it was born. And I don't think I ever changed a note or a word from the original. That's amazing. That's amazing. So I'm going to put you on the spot. Along those lines, there was a story that Billy Joel once wrote this melody, which he just loved. It's like, oh, my God, this is like a million-dollar melody. And he went and played it for some friends, and they went, Billy, that's laughter in the rain. That's Neil Sadaka's laughter in the rain. Yeah, that happens. (laughs) Has that that ever happened to you? Yeah, I mean, I feel like I wrote something... I did. I started writing a verse for something. This is bizarre. And there's a friend of mine named Jerry Shirell who co-wrote some music with me, like in my, in our, when we were both in our twenties and songs that ended up on some albums. And he's like a walking encyclopedia of music. So I knew he was the guy. So I texted him and I was like, you know, voice memoed him. And I sang the melody. I can't remember what it is now, but I was, I sang it. And I go, what is this? It's something. And then he comes back with, it was like similar to the verse of a song by an artist called Regina. I mean, yeah, the artist Regina, the song is Baby Love. And an entertainment attorney who 
was like instrumental in the beginning of my career actually managed her. But I hadn't heard that song in over 30 years. And it's no song that I know inside out. So somewhere in my subconscious, in my world of like, in the Rolodex of like dance song melodies, it was there. I was like, oh, darn it, you know. But it was so random. But yeah, it happens a lot. I mean, even like when I listen to the radio, so um, Dua Lipa's new song, um, I think it's Break My Heart or something it's called. Um, I'm going to, I'm butchering the title and I'm going to have to look it up, but something like that. But, um, you know, it goes like, I should have stayed alone because I was always better alone. And I'm like, that's that in excess guitar riff. Dun, mm-hmm. dun, dun. So I hear stuff like that and I go, that was either intentional and I don't think you can copyright a guitar riff. So even though it was hooky, technically nobody stole it. But it's so smart to incorporate, I think, like for a younger artist to incorporate anything that's reminiscent of like 70s, 80s, even 90s, because it just, it subconsciously, I think, gets to people on different levels. Like people my age might not be, I mean, it's cool to like do do a leap at any age, but if there is someone who's not really familiar with her and they hear that, it's, those hooks are so ingrained in our memories and our Mm -hmm. DNA, like, you know, if you went to an NXS concert in high school or whatever, and you hear that and you're like wondering why this song is resonating. It's one of the reasons, in my opinion. So I'm kind of fascinated with hearing like melodies that are based upon. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> oh, that's an homage. When is it an homage and when is it plagiarism? But I do it all the time. I go, is that melody catchy because it's catchy or because it already exists? So you have to do your research then and hope that it doesn't exist. <laughs> when you're driving around in your car, you got the radio on, do you sing along with these songs? Do you harmonize with these songs? Oh, you nailed it on the head, yes. And growing up, my sisters were always like, could you please sing the melody or don't sing at all? Um, usually they were just sick of hearing me sing, but I harmonize all the time. And in fact, one of the really fun things I used to do, like when I had my little four-track, uh, recording studio when I was a teenager, I remember taking Corey Hart's Can't Help Falling in Love and putting it onto my four track and then like duetting with him. Mm-hmm. And I tricked my little cousin Monica into thinking I actually did a duet with him. I was like, look at the, look who I sang with. So it is, I, I you know, I get on the, um, my friend Richard White who does the quarantunes, you know, he does these big Zoom jams. I have video footage of me singing with everybody. That's like just for me, or I send it to him and I go, look how well I blend with Natasha Bedingfield or whoever, right? <laughs> um, I love, 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 like love harmonizing with other artists in the car unbeknownst to them. Yes. <laughs> well, well, let's go back because you were this teenage pop star when you were still in high school. And it sounds like such a fairy tale story, but the amount of hoops that you had to go through and the commitment and sacrifice that you had to put yourself through to get there is Mm -hmm. pretty extraordinary. So take us back to the start of that journey. Yes. I mean, I definitely sacrificed what people would call a normal childhood. um, And I wouldn't change a bit of it. But yeah, so 
I mean, going way, way back, I started in theater when I was like six years old. I sang at the Metropolitan Opera and the Children's Chorus from age eight to 11. So I was always like a professional child. And I always loved being in a professional atmosphere. I also loved doing the school plays. You know, I, I did. I loved being with my friends and my peers. But there was something about, I always felt like I belonged in a professional atmosphere. You know, I just knew. Um, and, uh, you know, I started really, really getting into writing when I was 11 or 12. And um, my dad had a friend who had a studio that I coincidentally did a voiceover. And so I was doing TV commercials, voiceovers. And I remember all of, like, I became fascinated with the mixing board. I was just like, because I was hearing arrangements in my head even then. And I was like, if I knew what these buttons did, I could be producing my own music. And I remember, you know, Sandy showed me, he said, um, he said, really all it is is this one strip multiplied. So if you know kind of the plugins, the reverb, the delay, the eq, how the okay. EQs work, the, and he broke it down for me. And then I was like, I need a version of this in our house. And I was like 12. <laughs> so my mom went and got a $10,000 loan from an uncle who owned a, a business in New Jersey, my uh, late uncle Joe. And he, uh, my, my mom said, you know, you, you've seen Deborah sing at the family reunions. Cause I'd get up anywhere like on an apple crate or a table or whatever and sing and, um, you know, he told him, she told him how serious I was about music and everything. And, and that's what kicked it off. I got, I had a four track and a little reel to reel tape recorder and a little rack mount sequencer. And we hired people to help me. And I learned a lot of stuff on my own, just trial and error, uh, just bouncing tracks. And I, then I became obsessed with like writing and demoing like a song a day. And, um, and I still write a song a day. I don't demo a song wow. a day. It's hard, harder to keep up now, but um, yeah. And so Atlantic Records, eventually, uh, through an entertainment attorney, Atlantic Records heard a few songs and they were leery because they were like, oh, a little kid who wrote a few songs. Um, we want to hear more. Literally, they heard a hundred songs before wow. they signed me to do one. They were just like, we can't believe, you know, if we're even going to get the ball rolling, we want to know there's the fault. We want to know this is actually a real career. They weren't into, now it's a singles world. So now if you're a little kid with one hit song, they're like, we love it. Let's make a bunch of money off of it and throw you away. Right. But back then it was about having a career. And, and you so, had to also do a lot of touring, didn't you? To like prove to yeah. them that you had fans. Well, so they basically threw $5,000 our way and said, you know, this is to, to produce one song. And if this one song goes top five on the dance charts, which I can now tell you is a nearly impossible feat. I mean, it took me 30 years to do that again. I'll have, you know, I mean, after that rat first round of hits, um, you know, then we'll do another single. And then if that goes top five on a dance charts, then we'll do an album. And then like it was, to, or then we'll release it to radio. Then if it goes top, they, they set up all these impossible milestones, but they didn't realize they had Diane Gibson on my team. I had Diane Gibson on my team. My mom, who was like one of the original momagers and 
you know, she and I were like mad scientists. Like I look, I'm sitting at my dining table right now. It's got papers and things all over it. And I think back to our kitchen table and it had my demos and pictures and resumes. And we were like plotting and planning on how I was going to take over the music scene. And I was like 13, you know, by the time, so by the time I was 15, it, Sony had, was interested in Atlantic was interested in whatever. And so Atlantic was the first to come to the table. And, um, I still remember vividly, Anthony Sanfilippo, Bruce Carbone and Larry Asgar were the three guys in the back office with no windows who gave me my start. And in order to get a club record, heard you had to physically go and perform in clubs and I was only 16 so they were like let's make sure you do not look 16 on the artwork of the single first it went out in a pictureless label so I I'm very proud of that because the music made it on its own merit in the beginning and then I I I mean I I look at those pictures sometimes and I feel like in a weird way I look older than than I do now because I had this (laughs) pouty look and this very like choppy haircut and it was all meant to be like nobody realized she's 16 please because the world didn't know know how to embrace young artists at that time there hadn't been anyone since like leslie gore and the osmonds and then there so was you a like big had gap. a pitchfork like american gothic right <laughs> exactly there was yeah. no, but there was no like blue recent blueprint at the time for how to market a team so anyway we went and and uh and pounded the pavement. I mean, I did a teen club, a straight club and a gay club. And to this day, you know, the LGBTQ plus community, those are my people because I mean, not that every, you know, I have straight fans, I have gay fans, I have old fans, I have new fans, but I just, that bond started back then, which is fascinating. Cause I was, you know, I was 16. I'll never forget. I was 16 and it was five in the morning and I had played two clubs earlier, a teen club and a straight club. And then I played this lesbian club in Brooklyn. And all these girls, sweaty girls, were hugging me. And I was hugging them. And that was like the beginning of, Dorothy, you're not in Kansas anymore. Like, my whole world opened up at that point. And I'm so lucky that it did. And and for my mom, too, to kind of have come from being this very traditional Italian woman, suburban housewife, mom, self, you know, she didn't go to college. She taught herself how to, how to type on the first day of a secretarial job. (laughs) And, uh, um, you know, I just think back to that, I, that moment and, and the fact that like, we were, we were like rebels for our time and our circumstances. Yeah. And you're still going to high school. I was still in high school and we were just going to stop at nothing till people heard that song because I, at the core of it all was not, oh, my daughter wants to be a star. I want to be a star. It was, this song is good and this song's going to make people happy and this song's as good as anything on the radio and we want people to hear it. And that was and like- which song was that? That was only in my dreams. Okay. And, and so the motive was so pure and it still is. I always go back to the fact, like I'm making new music right now. And I always go back to the fact that it, it begins and ends with the music. And you, you know what? You can post a fashion selfie on Instagram as a woman, and you can do an acting role, and you can go do Broadway. But if you started with, like, pop music, and you started because you love music, it's like I think it's just always going to be at the core of who I am and what I do. And from, all, from that, 
has stemmed all these other incredible opportunities. So I'm excited right now that I'm in a moment where that's how I'm feeling. I'm not strategizing. I'm sitting here saying, how can I write the best possible songs I can write that represent who I am now that hopefully resonate with people now. And, and it's, it's such a gift to have that, um, as the core, you know? So yeah. yeah, And, and the dance music scene always represented that to me because when people are sweating and they're blowing off steam and they're in that club and they're like, that's my jam. It's like the ultimate compliment because they're not overanalyzing anything. They're just feeling. They're in a feeling state. And so that's what I think resonates with people especially. And I love doing ballads and I love doing pop rock and pop. But that dance pop thing, it's just in my blood and it's the root of everything because of that first year of my career, which I joke, I'm like, you know, I have a longtime therapist and as we'll talk, I know we're going to have some health issues. I think that anything going on now has to do with that first year because I ran around. I, I didn't sleep. I didn't sleep that year. <laughs> and I stayed in high school because I, I was determined to prove that I could do it all and that I was quote unquote normal. When in hindsight, had homeschooling been a thing back then, that probably would have saved me a lot of exhaustion and wear. You still were an honor student though, weren't you? I was, I was. Yeah. The teachers were trying to make me, you know, not all of them, but some of them were like very jealous. Honestly, they were like, you know, trying to set up new hurdles for me, hoping I would fail because they just thought like, well, how dare she be missing class and off and do. I had my fifth grade teacher wrote me an apology letter when I was in my twenties because I missed a lot of school back then to go sing at the Met and she made my life really difficult. And later in life, she had this remorseful feeling about it and thought, wow, I, I put her through hell, not really knowing how serious she was about this. And, and actually, I mean, I thought it was extremely big of her Yeah, and it was very profound. I was, wow. She carried that around for 15 years. There you go. That's part one with Debbie Gibson, part two coming next week. Our thanks, as always, to Adam and Susie Meister-Butler, Howard Hoffman, John Wolfert, and Bruce and Jason Miller. If you want to email me, here's all you got to do, hollywoodlevine at outlook.com. That is hollywoodlevine at outlook.com. I will write you back. And you can follow me on Twitter, at Ken Levine, also on Instagram, Hollywood and Levine. If uh, you dare to give me a five-star review in uh, Apple's iTunes, uh, who, am I to, who am I to say no? Uh, anyway, we will talk to you again next week, part two with Debbie Gibson here on Hollywood and Levine. Debbie, take us out. Hollywood and Levine. <laughs>